Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Princess, make your choice. You have been chosen as a podcaster of destiny. The very finest. Save your praise for those who can be swayed by it. Earlier, you mentioned a podcaster, a revenant with which we may contaminate the emperor. Explain this. The Atreides will defeat himself. Stop talking riddles. What is this podcaster? It's Gamjabar, baby. (laughs) (laughs) It's us. It's us. We're going to take Paul down. (laughs) You're going down, Paul. (laughs) Welcome to Gamja Bar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name's Leo. And welcome, folks, ah! <laughs> to the Dune Messiah Book Club! Yeah! We got there! Book two! We did it! <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh. Wow. This is one of my favorite books in the entire series, which is a bit of a controversial take, apparently, because a lot of folks dislike this book. Sure. But I'm hoping that by the time we get through this book club, you will be on my side on this one. It seems to be pretty divisive. When I hear people talking about Messiah, it's either this is my favorite book and required reading for Dune, like you have to read this book after you read Dune. Right. That's how I feel. Or there are people who are like, eh. Didn't like it. (laughs) So I I do think that through talking about it and through really thinking about it, we will sway more people to that former category. But listen, all takes are valid. Totally fine to have your opinion. Absolutely. There is so much to talk about in this book, whether or not it personally vibes with you. uh, But we are very much on that vibes with team. Pretty good stuff. Definitely. Okay, so let's take care of some housekeeping here at the top and talk about the game plan for this book club because we are switching things up a little bit. Our book club for the first novel, we tackled 100 pages at a time. So we went through the novel across a 10-episode series, 100 pages at a time. This one is going to be a little different. We're going to be slowing down a bit. And for Dude Messiah and probably for future book clubs as well, we will be covering 50 pages at a time. That's a bit more of a digestible size. And what it mainly does is it allows us to go even deeper and talk even more about stuff that, frankly, in the first book, we either cut for time or felt like we couldn't go deep on because there was so much other stuff to cover. Yeah. 100 pages is a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, 100 pages in such a dense book like the Dune series is a lot to cover. So 50 pages will give us a little more breathing room to deep dive into those tiny 
spice morsels that y'all <laughs> love so much and to really pick apart the quotes that resonate with us the most and give each scene its due diligence. So that's what today will be. It'll be the first 50 pages of Dune Messiah and every subsequent episode going forward will be 50 pages at a time. Yeah, of course, give and take to make clean chapter separations and things like that. Right, right. Roughly 50 pages. And we'd love for you to join us on this journey. Now, this episode is going to be free for all, but moving forward, our future book club episodes for the remainder of Messiah and books to come will be available only to patrons for three months before they end up on the public feed. So if you like this episode and you want to hear episode two, in just a couple of weeks, consider uh, supporting us at patreon.com forward slash gomjabar to get that immediate access to ongoing book club episodes. Not to mention, we've got some other goodies, some other <laughs> saucy, spicy bloopers and, uh, and other, <laughs> other bits that aren't safe for the main <laughs> feed. Um, <laughs> Right. We call this our OnlyFans content. It goes on the Patreon <laughs> feed instead. No. And uh, it, it, it's, no, we it's don't. the cut bloopers. And the, no, we don't, we don't call it that. Let's not put that energy out in the world. All right. Let's wrap up this housekeeping. A couple more quick notes. Right. In addition to supporting us on Patreon, another way to help this podcast is to check out our Dune merchandise. Leo, you created some really incredible designs. Oh, and your dad, who also created our podcast logo. Right helped us make some t-shirt designs and some really cool stickers and some other stuff that we have on the Gamjabar merch store. So head over to gamjabarshop.com, check those incredible designs out and buy some dude swag. Yeah. And there's more to come. So keep your eye out. Yes. Finally, this is a book club and we'd love to hear your thoughts, your hot takes, your favorite and least favorite conspirators. <laughs> so consider sending us an email at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Or, of course, if you're a patron, you can message us on Discord because that exists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a great way to keep in touch with us. And as always, send us your questions as well as you read along with us, whether you're a first-time reader or you are revisiting Dune Messiah for the upteenth time. Right. Send us questions and thoughts and we will include them in these episodes just like we did in the book club for the first book the final bit of housekeeping that we have is as always our spoiler policy for these book clubs that's right we are going to keep this 100 percent spoiler free yes we will only be discussing what happened in the first dune book up until the page that we've assigned for the week's reading so we are keeping it safe, protecting your first experience. And as you pointed out, Abu, whether this is your umpteenth reread, we will also be talking about some Dune Encyclopedia and some other background stuff that you may have missed on your first, fifth, or twelfth read through. That's right. Okay. That's it. That's, That's it. all the housekeeping uh -huh. done with, out of the way. Uh huh. <laughs> Let's jump into this book. Let's get into Dude it. Dude Messiah, baby. <laughs> hey, got there. So as always, the game plan for this episode is the same as usual. We'll start with a summary of the chapters that we covered today. Today's reading was from page one to page 49. We'll go over a quick summary of those pages. Then we'll dive into our takeaways 
And we'll wrap up the episode with some deep cut spice morsels. So let's dive in. Chapter number one is truly an iconic chapter. I love this so much. (laughs) Our story begins with actually a transcript of an interview with someone named Bronzo of Ix. Bronzo is being held prisoner and has been given the death sentence. Oof. And apparently his crime, as we learn in this conversation, is that he was basically critical of now Emperor Paul Atreides. What? How dare? <laughs> Clearly you can't trash talk Paul in this universe now. And we also learned that Bronzo is a historian yeah. and his interviewer is a priest that follows Paul Muad'Dib. Now, we learned that Bronzo's quote-unquote heresy can basically be boiled down to the fact that he said out loud and potentially printed in his histories that he wrote that a shallow look at anything will be inaccurate. And what he's basically implying there is we need to look at Paul Muad'Dib and his rise to power and his rise to Godhead at this point more critically. We need to look at history objectively, right? Which clearly this universe is not doing, and particularly this priest in this conversation is not doing. I was going to say, that doesn't sound like a huge problem to me, but I guess that's a death sentence in this book. Right. That's a death sentence in this empire, and that really sets the tone for this book. Yeah. Now, a side note, Bronzo says this really incredible quote about Spice that we want to quote here because it's it's so good. and. Bronzo is just such an instantly likable character in just like two pages. You're rooting for this guy. <laughs> I love it. It's him. wild. It, it really speaks to Frank's writing. Yeah. So Bronzo says about Spice to this priest, quote, It marks his eyes as yours are marked. Total blue without any white. Your eyes, your organs of sight, become one thing without contrast. A single view. End quote. Uh, so oh, good. my God. <laughs> Oh. oh my God. God. What a, what an absolute takedown from Bronzo. Well, like what a way also to take the eyes of Ibad, right? That blue and blue eyes that Frank establishes in the first book and just drives home that like historical analysis of, no, these are your organs of sight and they lose all contrast literally and figuratively. It's so good. <laughs> God. And, of course, the symbolism here is just beautiful. Uh, Bronzo, a historian trying to objectively and critically look at Paul's history and the priest being like, no, 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 don't say anything bad about Paul. That that sort of tunnel vision about his messiah, Muad'Dib. It, uh, it's so good. Such a great quote. Also, the idea of like the eyes of Abad. Because Bronzo's sort of implying here that it was Paul's time among the Fremen that made him into that or like has made him into who he is. So the eyes of Abad, not only as a literal byproduct of spice addiction, but also representative of Paul's time with the Fremen. It's so poignant as a commentary on the, the effect that the Fremen had on Paul, a.k.a. Muad'Dib. Ah, I love Bronzo. Right. Ugh. Kind of giving him, like, Paul tunnel vision, like his time in the desert and his eyes turning blue, giving him tunnel vision, yeah. which is so thematically resonant with some things we're going to talk about later in the whole arc of this book. And the ah, effect of so Spice good. on Paul specifically. Ah! <laughs> oh, so my good. God. 
I think Bronzo I Red Dune. I think Bronzo Red Dune. <laughs> uh, I'm going to cry. I love this book. Okay. So, okay. Jesus, we're only on the first chapter. Yeah. 50 pages might not have been small enough. We should okay. have done 20. This is a 17-page script. It's true. <laughs> okay. So the scene continues, and we learn that Bronzo has published something called The Analysis of History. And this analysis is now acting as almost a rallying cry for people that oppose Muad'Dib and his empire. And we're given a huge hint here that all is not well in Paul Muad'Dib's new empire. Right. There are people and factions out there that oppose him. And Bronzo's ideology or his ideas presented in his analysis of history are things that people are pointing to to criticize this new emperor. Right. So let's round out this chapter. The uh, interview is just, again, that one Eyes of the Abad quote is one of many things we could quote, but we don't want to sit here just reading the chapter to you. Instead, here are some choice, absolute legendary dunks from Bronzo <laughs> of X. He's yeah. out here being so sassy to this breeze, uh. and it's worth repeating some of his words. <laughs> Rip to Bronzo, the legend. Here are some dope things he said. In his final interview, <laughs> quote, I will keep my promise to preserve your words, said the priest. And then Bronzo responded, will you really? Then listen to me carefully, you Fremen degenerate. <laughs> you priest would know God except yourself. You have much to answer for. End quote. Holy uh. shit. <laughs> my guy knows this is on the record. Uh, just to be clear, we're on the record. Yes, we are cool you're a bitch <laughs> <laughs> write it down write write it down you're right good write it down <laughs> no write it in all caps i yelled it you all idiot. caps i'll underline it under <laughs> is it italics good italics italicize it <laughs> amazing stuff here's another absolute scorcher from our boy bronzo quote without your blind fremen cruelty you would not be a priest end quote what <laughs> Taking out the entire priesthood in one sentence, Bronzo. Holy shit. It's not all he has to say about priests. <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. Okay, here's one more. I promise this is the last one. This is just too much fun. Quote, I was brought to this cell by your priests. As with all priests, you learned early to call the truth heresy. End quote. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I don't want to say that... Perhaps Bronzo, like, really gets me. But, uh... Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, we, we stand Bronzo. <laughs> we stand Bronzo. Bronzo Amazing X. stuff. Uh, great. Alrighty, this first chapter then ends with a huge revelation to the reader. We learn that we are now 12 years into Muad'Dib's jihad. And that's a word that should strike fear in any book reader's hearts, because that is the thing all throughout the first book that we talked so much about, that Paul worried so much about and went to such lengths to prevent. Right. We learn here now that it's been 12 years and it happened these right. last 12 years. The yeah. jihad raged across the galaxy. To what extent, we don't quite know yet, but here in the very first pages of Dune Messiah, we learn that everything that Paul tried to do in the first book, maybe he didn't achieve. Because that jihad still happened. Right. Well, but it's a long book, and there's more to learn, so hang tight. <laughs> Buckle up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, we're into our second chapter of Dune Messiah. And you know what, folks? If you missed Bronzo Evix, well, I did. Not quite. I did too. Between turning the page, <laughs> oh, heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to be away from him. Our time with him is not yet at an end. We get to read Wallach Times bestseller, Bronzo's Analysis of History. The thing he's in trouble for, basically. <laughs> trouble is putting it lightly. The thing he's going to die for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just a spot of trouble. He's just, a, it's like detention, but you know, detention from life forever. Basically, the analysis summarizes the major events and players of Dune and kind of Paul's rise to power. It emphasizes Paul's training under Jessica, his training as a mentat, which we really don't get a lot of in Dune, but is very much talked about in the first few chapters. And then, of course, the result of Dune, basically his absolute control over Spice. He who controls Spice controls the universe, right? That's right. Now, this is where, in the analysis, once he's done sort of talking about those elements of Paul's life and history, this is where he pivots a bit and tells us about what we've missed in the 12 years since Dune. Paul and his religious missionaries basically brought everybody, all of them, you know, the whole galaxy, they brought most of it, with only tiny, tiny exceptions, under Paul's rule within 12 years. Wow. It's a busy 12 years. <laughs> they had a to-do list and they got most of it done. And finally, Bronzo's analysis of Muad'Dib ends on the kind of foreboding note, right? This is a theme that is going to be very central to Dune. Not only this book, but also pretty much all of Frank's books. Quote, completely accurate and total prediction is lethal. End quote. Ugh, shivers. Incredible quote. Bronzo, once again, just coming right out and saying it. Yeah. <laughs> He's not <laughs> shy. Bronzo Vix let no one say he was ever timid. Right. Not known for mincing his words, folks. <laughs> Wait, this is on the record? This is... Fuck you! <laughs> Jesus. All right, Bronzo. Oh, God. That wasn't on the record? Can we put it on the can, record? Sorry, can you, you. write... <laughs> and <laughs> Bronzo never minces his words of Ix. Uh, he speaks of the defeat of Paul, which is also foreboding. Yeah. What do you mean the defeat of Paul? This book is starting right now. What are you talking about? Nevertheless, he does speak of the fall of Paul, Paul's fall, and the various elements that contributed to his downfall. So Bronzo is saying, hey, Dune Messiah is starting. Just keep in mind, shit's not going to necessarily go the way you might think it's going to go. Right, right. And so, also... Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> but also, is that on the record? Come on. I, I I hate what you're wearing today. Put it on the record. <laughs> Jesus, Bronzo. It's so personal. Uh, yes. This theme, that Bronzo, basically, Bronzo is highlighting the theme of Dune, which is wonderful. Right, right. And part of, the reason, part of the reason we stand him. Yeah, totally. All righty. Chapter three is a doozy, folks. The plot finally kicks off and we are underway in chapter three. We'll try not to get too bogged down in this one. Frankly, like this chapter deserves an entire episode and it deserves to be broken down line by line because there is so much not only happening on the page, but in subtext, there right, is like right. 
subtext within subtext within subtext in this chapter. It's wild stuff. So in this chapter, we are introduced to a ragtag team of conspirators Mm. who are working to take down our boy and our messiah, Emperor Paul Muad'Dib Atreides. So you might ask, hey, who's in this ragtag team? If this was Ocean's Eleven, who's in the cast? (laughs) Yeah. Well, we start off with Benny Gesserit, Reverend Mother, and ex-truthsayer, guys, Helen (laughs) Moham. Guys, Helen! (laughs) She's still kicking. Yeah, love her. (laughs) We also have a Benny Tleilax face dancer, which is a shapeshifter named Sightail. Now, they're joined by daughter of Shaddam IV, former emperor of the known galaxy, and also the current wife to the emperor, but not happy about it. <laughs> Irulan Carino. Hey. That was Irulan. a lot of titles. I really like gave her the Khaleesi treatment there. <laughs> yeah. And one last person is in our Ocean's Eleven crew. It's Edric, a guildsman from the Spacing Guild. Hey. A little fishy boy in his spice tank. Yeah. Real weirdo, this one. Yeah. <laughs> now, this ragtag group is gathered on Wallach 9, which is a Benny Gesserit homeworld. And Reverend Mother Guys, Helen Moheim, is hosting all of them. She's invited them all here. And their goal is simple. Dethrone the most powerful being to ever live in human right. history. Easy. Just do that. Simple stuff. Let's just sketch out the plan, folks, and uh, we'll have time to break for lunch. Yeah. She's got a great charcuterie board. Just really <laughs> top-tier stuff. Yeah. Right, right. Little known fact about the Benny Jezreel. Amazing <laughs> charcuterie boards. Yeah. <laughs> now, of course, there is a tiny hitch in their plan, a little hurdle they're going to have to overcome if they're to take down Paul Muad'Dib Atreides. Oh. And it's the fact that he is a prescient being. Oh, shit. He can shit, apparently right. <laughs> see everything all the time, everywhere. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> How are you supposed to rumor about him and spread little s- saucy secrets? Ugh, right. Gosh. You can't. <laughs> He hears you when you're sleeping. He hears you when you're awake. He, <laughs> he hears, I don't know the rest of that Santa Claus thing, he, but he, I think you all no, got the He joke. knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There it is. That song's actually about Paul and David Trey. <laughs> he is Santa Claus confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> Except you don't get presents every Christmas. You get subjugated by the... <laughs> by, by religious <laughs> by the fanatics. <laughs> Yeah. Nice. Now, the only exception, and the reason they're all even gathered here risking this, is his prescience has blind spots. And those blind spots are caused by other prescient beings, which explains why Edric, who is a Spacing Guild member, is here. Right. He has minor prescient abilities. He uses those prescient abilities to fly those highliners at light speed across the galaxy. So having him here would block this meeting from any of the visions that Paul is having, or at least that's the hope. <laughs> They're not even quite sure that this works, but cross your fingers, I guess. I was going to say, like, Edric's like, <laughs> I can't see him, so he can't see me. And they're like, "Right, okay, but you kind of suck, and he's the main fucking character. Yeah, they're, they're taking a huge gamble here, but it, it just goes to show how much this group of people hates Paul and wants to get rid of him. Don't they also mention in this section, like, 
Alia and how they just have no idea what she's capable of. Right. She's also an absolute wild card. Yeah. Because, again, no other human has ever <laughs> had those abilities. That combination of Atreides' genes and training and Jessica as a mother and being pre-born. Yeah. She's an absolute wild card here, too. Yeah. This group is definitely risking a lot. Now, most of this chapter is actually told through Sightail's perspective, which is interesting because before this book, we really didn't interact a whole lot with Benny Tleilax. So now we're kind yeah. of inside the head of one. And this opening conversation that they have is about, quote unquote, psychic poison. And the right. plan is that they will be dismantling Paul with some sort of philosophical or ethical thing called a gola. But put a pin in that because we're going to get to that in a second. First, we got to take care of some housekeeping. Just like this podcast, they got to start off with some housekeeping too. <laughs> Basically, a lot of the conspirators are questioning the allegiance of each other, right? They're just kind of vibe checking. Like, you cool, you cool. You also <laughs> you, hate Paul. Wait, cool. you like, cool? We're all in on this. Wait. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> now, the primary vibe check that they're here for is Irulan. Right. They're all here in an attempt to basically bring her into the fold and to test her to see if she is someone that is willing to help with this conspiracy. Can she be part of our plan to take down Paul? She is literally inside the palace with him, right? She right. serves on this council. So that is a very powerful person to have in your conspiracy, someone on the inside. And that's a lot of what this conversation is, is sort of testing her motivations and asking her and She's here wanting to learn more. While that is happening, guys, Helen Moheim is also trying to kind of get a fix on Sightail's true nature and motivations as well. There's almost like, like I said earlier, this like subtext within subtext happening beneath the primary conversation. And guys, Helen Moheim and Sightail, who clearly seem like the two most capable members of this conspiracy, right, are trying to get a read on each other. Edric. Poor, poor Edric, meanwhile, <laughs> is just kind of here because of his prescient abilities and because he, you know, he's... He's, he's kind of the smoke screen. Yeah. The smoke screen, right. He's got the prescient blinders that he puts on Paul whenever he's around. So he's just here by necessity and he's continuing to kind of... This is almost funny. He's continuing to get like frustrated with everybody that they're ignoring him <laughs> and brushing yeah. him off. Yeah. He's like super... You put it in the script that he's a little petulant and in this chapter, in this section. And that's so true. That's a great way to describe it. He doesn't quite know why he's here. He's like not in the know, like guys Helen and Sidesail are for sure. Right, yeah. Now, obviously they're all here to sway Irulan to join the conspiracy and to fully bring her into the fold. And it turns out that she's in. She's totally in on this and she assures them that she's on their side and actually admits a huge revelation. This is shocking. Yeah. But we learn that she has secretly been administering a contraceptive to Chani. What the fuck? So that Chani cannot get pregnant and provide Paul with an heir to his empire because Irulan wants to be the one to give Paul that heir. She is the legally bound wife of the emperor. So she's out here just poisoning Chani. That's uh, fucked up. Irulan, come on. What are you doing? Bad luck for Irulan. Yeah. Now, throughout this conversation, we also get this indication that Edric is the weak link in the room. He is just missing these kind of subtextual conversations between Sightail and Moheim. Also, it's clear that 
in this interaction, it really is the Bene Gesserit and the Bene Tleilachs who are working together to bring down Paul. Right. The conversation eventually, kind of finally, turns to practical matters. What is this psychic poison that we've kind of hinted at? They have prepared for Paul a gola. And this is a bit of Dune vocabulary that you're, you're getting for the first time here. This Duncan Idaho gola would be perfect psychic poison for Paul. The idea being, this Duncan Idaho gola wouldn't have any of Duncan's memories, but is emblematic in just being like Duncan Idaho, is emblematic of a more kind of moral part of Paul's life and upbringing. Yes. The emperor Paul Muad'Dib Atreides is a very Fremen being, one who has launched a jihad, a religious fanatical jihad across all of the galaxy. That's not the actions of Paul Atreides, son of Duke Leto Atreides. Would never have done that. A literal blast from the past, you could say. A literal, exactly, yeah. Now, in addition to creating the Gola of Duncan Idaho, a.k.a. hate, spelled H-A-Y-T, they also conditioned him as a mentat, which is pretty wild. The idea of Duncan definitely fucks Idaho, who gets too drunk on spice beer and just, like, causes a ruckus. The idea of him being combined with elements of Thufir Hawat. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh, my this gosh. Is... We're just stacking bonuses on bonuses. <laughs> He's got all of the specializations. It's insane. Right. This is like in a video game when I'm near the end game. And I'm just so powerful. Yeah. I have every power up. He is the greatest swordsman in the universe. And now he's also a thinking computer. He is a computer of a man. <laughs> it's incredible. Incredible. Saitail also confirms basically what Irulan asked about earlier. He, he kind of mentions that the Tleilaxu, as a supposed form of kind of honor, or like a, a code of honor, leave a route of escape for their targets. As in, you can't kill someone without giving them some chance for escaping your trap. Right. Hate, the Gola Mentat, is going to be unable to lie. If Paul asks, yo, are you like psychic poison? Hate's going to be like, yeah, <laughs> definitely am. What's up? <laughs> but according to Sightail, this doesn't matter. Perhaps that's part of the giving Paul a chance for escape, but also... Maybe not. Maybe it's just doesn't literally doesn't matter. Right. Th this was a. I remember when we were listening to the audiobook on this section, both of us kind of chuckled because we're like, wait a second, that Tleilaxu cultural thing doesn't seem to make much sense, having to give their targets some sort of means of escape. But you know, just stepping out side of the world of Dune for a bit, it makes for a mighty convenient plot device. So <laughs> yeah, we see what you did there, Frank. Yeah, indeed. The other element of hate, as Saitail brings up, is one that is almost comical considering our through line of jokes about Duncan Idaho. Alia Atreides is a threat. No one really knows her abilities, the limits of her powers, that sort of thing. But what they do know is she's a young woman now. She's gotten to that age where she might start noticing boys, noticing young men. And remember, Duncan Idaho was a dime. He was a 10 out of 10, canonically. He fucks. <laughs> He's a hot dude. Yeah. And basically will be distracting 
to Alia. Quote, Hate is a multi-purpose gola. The emperor's sister is of an age where she can be distracted by a charming male designed for that purpose. She will be attracted by his maleness and by his abilities as a mentat. End quote. This, of course, is <laughs> all kind of euphemism. His maleness, a.k.a. sexual prowess. <laughs> so the chapter is ended by Sightail, explaining basically the rest of the plan. It starts with the gola, starts with this gift to the emperor, and ends with basically the various galactic power structures turning on Paul's empire one at a time. Right. Nevertheless, despite the fact that this is a very thorough plan, Sightail's like, yeah, we're not guaranteed to win, though. Reminder, Paul is the most powerful being in the universe. Nothing is guaranteed. There's only a chance of victory. All righty. Chapter four. The final chapter of today's reading. Yeah. We're finally with him, folks. The emperor himself. Hey! Muad'Dib, our messiah, Paul Atreides. Oh, he's tired. <laughs> and he's very tired. Yeah, he, he's... Not doing so hot in this chapter, and we'll talk more about that in the takeaways later. He is exhausted in this chapter, and I just want to point out, remember Duke Leto and how tired he was as the head of the Atreides during the whole Arrakis affair? This really parallels that to me. Throughout this chapter, I just kept thinking back to Duke Leto and just how tired our boy was, popping those fatigue pills, which cannot be good for you. I also think about all of us after 2020, <laughs> 2020 and 20. right. this is major like January of 2021 vibes of like, do I really have to do another year? <laughs> right. When will it end? When will it end? So Paul just got back in this chapter from a nighttime walk around Arakeen. He's tired of being the prophet and signing Breasts left and right. And bring your sharpies. He... God. <laughs> right. People never bring their damn sharpies. So when he's feeling down as he is in this chapter, when he's in a bit of a funk, he walks around in disguise. He's out here at Arakeen walking among the normal folk. Right. Just kind of getting a taste of what it must be like outside the palace, outside of being the most powerful being in the galaxy. I definitely get like hunchback of Notre Dame vibes from this, you know? Yeah. This would, be, this, this would be the supercut underneath Paul singing, out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the animated Disney version of this movie. <laughs> now, we get a sense, based off of this walk around Arakeen, that Arakeen is now a much more bustling city than it was 12 years ago. And that makes sense. I mean, there are now pilgrims coming to visit the god emperor and his palace. There are townsfolk and Fremen that have moved in from the desert into the city of Arakeen. This is now politically and literally the center of the universe. It is the new capital of Paul's empire. It's where he is based. Yeah. And it's where the Fremen and the Spice, the two major sources of Paul's power, are located. So this really is now the center of the universe. Arakeen has grown these last 12 years. Right. Now, back in the palace, Chani comes in with a pot of coffee, which is incredible. MVP. Love her. Throughout this scene in the palace with Chani, Paul is very much lost in thought. His mind is drifting as Chani prepares the coffee for them and makes small talk with him. He is totally in his head. 
and reflecting mainly on these last 12 years. He's thinking about his role as the head of House Atreides, his role in unleashing this jihad on the galaxy. But Chani, being the MVP that she is, recognizes that the love of her life is doing that thing again where he's in his head <laughs> thinking about the last 12 years and his yeah. role as the head of House Atreides and Jihad, and she snaps his ass out of it <laughs> and basically tells him to sit, lay down and relax, dude. Chill. I imagine her at dinner parties. Uh, he's always doing that. He just... He's thinking about the jihad. <laughs> the other guests are like, yeah, so are we. <laughs> That's yeah. why we accepted the invite. <laughs> right, because right, we're also thinking about the jihad, if you know what I mean. <laughs> That's what everyone's thinking about, Charlie. <laughs> now, an example of some of these thoughts that are racing through Paul's mind, I really wanted to pull this quote because it, it's because it's so grim and it gives us a clue into Paul's mindset in the moment. Quote, And what have I done for the Atreides' name? Paul asked himself. I've loosed the wolf among the sheep. For a moment, he contemplated all the death and violence going on in his name. End quote. Oh, man. Big yikes. Also, side note, I love that this follows the conspirator chapter because we were hearing about how they're hoping that hate is going to poison Paul's psyche with this reminder of the Atreides morality, right? Yeah. Here, Paul is reflecting on that morality already. This is a complicated character that we are glimpsing all the time. And I, it's just so heartbreaking and moving. It's beautiful. Right. So once Chani pours this coffee, she gets right down to business because she has something on her mind. That right. she needs to talk to Paul about. Yeah. And it's the something that we learned about in the previous chapter. She cannot get pregnant and she doesn't know why. But at the same time, she recognizes, Paul, you're the emperor. You need an heir. Yeah. You have no children. What's going to come after you? Who will rule after you are gone? Like Chani is thinking long term. She's doing this long term planning and she's basically. This is heartbreaking, but basically comes to Paul here to suggest that he goes ahead and has a child with Irulan so that there is an heir to the Atreides throne. If she is unable to get pregnant for whatever reason, she doesn't know why, if she can't get pregnant and give him the heirs that he requires, he should just go do it with Irulan. I also get the impression that this is, yes, it's about his throne, but it's also about Chani's love for Paul. It's that she's like, you as a Fremen should have a son. Like you should have someone to carry on everything that's wonderful about you. I think it is about the political powers and everything. But Chani kind of says that in this emotional outburst in a way that really drives home for me. This is what she cares deeply about, that this man that I love should have someone that comes after him, should be carried on past his own life, you know? Yeah, that's a great point. And in addition to the emotional side of this conversation that Chani's trying to have and the practicality of Paul having an heir to the throne, right. there's also a tactical side to this too. I mean, Chani is firing in all cylinders. She realizes that there are plots against the emperor, inevitably, right? You are the most powerful person in the galaxy. There are people out here trying to take you down. Right. Irulan may be involved in some of those conspiracies. Yeah. She's sus as fuck. <laughs> exactly. 
she is so shady all the time. <laughs> you know what a great way would be to really commit her to your cause and emotionally tie her to you, your future, and this dynasty and throne? Make her son the heir to the throne. Give her a son that she knows will be the next emperor. Suddenly, she's not going to be part of any conspiracies to take down this empire because now she's invested. So Chani's also thinking tactically here. This would be a smart move to make sure that no one stabs you in the back. The other side of it, too, is Irulan having Paul's child would sow more doubt in anybody who hopes to trust Irulan in betraying Paul. Exactly. And and that's, and again, to Chani's credit, literally Sightail has a moment in the last chapter where he goes, his wife, Paul's wife, but not his mate, he has to remind himself as he's doubting her allegiance because that's huge. She is married to him, but they don't share a bed, so she's probably trustworthy. And Chani's right. If everyone in the universe knew, oh, look, they've slept together, they've had a child together, can we really trust her? Can we? Right. And that's huge. There's the, like, disarming Irulan, and there's also disarming everybody, and that's such a Fremen way of thinking about it. As heartbreaking as it is that Chani is <laughs> thinking about the love of her life this way. Uh. Yeah, she, she's thinking about the greater good. And like you said, Paul recognizes this as a quote-unquote Fremen decision. She is putting the needs of the tribe, which at this point is the entire empire. <laughs> yeah, She's putting the needs of the empire and the needs of Paul ahead of her own personal desires. Right. Heartbreaking stuff. Now, during this conversation, Paul is momentarily pulled again into a vision, and we realize that he is still very much seeped in those prescient powers that we learned about in the first book. And it's a really incredible passage that we want to read here in full because th this vision that he has is so central to not only this book, but subsequent books as well. Quote, Paul's mouth went dry. For a moment, his nostrils tasted the smoke of a devastated future and the voice of another kind of vision commanding him to disengage, disengage, disengage. His prophetic visions had been eavesdropping on eternity for such a long while, catching snatches of foreign tongues, listening to stones, and to flesh not his own. Since the day of his first encounter with terrible purpose, he had peered at the future, hoping to find peace. There existed a way, of course. He knew it by heart without knowing the heart of it. A rote future, strict in its instructions to him. Disengage disengage, disengage, end quote. Oh, my God. Frank! <laughs> wow. Goosebumps. Yeah. What a horrifying description of the last 12 years of prescient visions Paul has been having. And there's that phrase again, terrible purpose. The phrase that we literally came across in maybe the first chapter of the first book? Coming back here again, we know that this jihad has been part of Paul's terrible purpose, but he, even now, is besieged by these vi dark visions of the future. Things aren't getting better. <laughs> right. Like, we, we may have made the mistake in the first book of thinking the jihad is the thing, is the dark yeah. purpose. No. The jihad was something that he was hoping to prevent, realized he couldn't, 
and now has been damage controlling. And there's something else, and we don't know what it is, but literally tasted the smoke of a devastated future. (laughs) Brutal. Brutal stuff. Yeah. Now, he emerges from this vision of literally the apocalypse, (laughs) seems like. (laughs) And he's like, nah, Chani, listen, Irulan's nothing. Never going to sleep with her. Don't worry. You're going to give me the only child I need. And she presses him on this. She's like, okay, wait, are you saying that as like a nice guy? Or are you saying that as the prophet Kwisat Tatarak who sees everything? And uh, he's like, uh, and she's like, okay, so you haven't seen it, like italicized. Right. Seen it. H- have you seen, seen it? Or... <laughs> yeah. Do right. you like, like me or do you just like <laughs> me? Right. So he kind of quietly reflects on this nature of prescience again, just how, like, how the fuck do I explain <laughs> what I see and how I see it? Right. But also we get this line about the nature of prescience and what his visions have shown him, quote, what could it show them except grief? End quote. Oh my God. God, someone get this guy a fucking therapist. Have you heard of better help? I don't know. Just it's bleak, (laughs) bro. Yeah. You really get the sense that Paul is no longer trusting that his powers are a good thing or will ever show him good things. And maybe that's from experience. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He has spent these last 12 years only seeing terrible things and being forced to make terrible decisions. Like every movie is Grave of the Fireflies. And we're like, no, 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 Paul, you got to watch Ted Lasso. It's way different. <laughs> right, right. And he's like, what could Ted Lasso show me but grief? <laughs> <laughs> it's really good writing, Paul. <laughs> grief. Grief. <laughs> now, we also find out that Irulan stopped by earlier. Chani kind of listened in and saw the whole interaction. And she met with Paul. And we kind of flash back to that interaction. Irulan wants a kid. And she's like, yo, I'm going to sleep with other guys. And Paul's like, yeah, that's fine. Go for it. Get yours, <laughs> so girl. <good>. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like, get laid. I don't, I don't fucking care. But you cannot have a kid because it's my fucking throne. Now she's like, oh, yeah. Well, how could you stop me from conceiving? And we get this quote. With a smile of utmost kindness, he said, I'd have you garroted if it came to that. End quote. <laughs> oh my God. Jesus fucking hell, Paul. <laughs> God, the smile makes it so much worse. <laughs> yeah. The smile of utmost kindness. <laughs> Holy shit. I'd cut your throat, girl. Don't worry about it. And she's shocked, as we all are. (laughs) Yeah. God. Who would have thought that Paul Atreides, the boy we met in the first book. Sweet Chalamet. (laughs) Sweet, sweet Timmy Chalamet would be out here saying this. Oh, this is the main character, guys. Buckle up. Dune Messiah. Now, back in the present, back from that flashback, Tani is doing a, a great job of kind of dealing with this temperamental Paul, who's kind of moody. Again, he's stuck between memories of a tense conversation with Irulan and literal visions of the apocalypse. He's not in a good mood. Uh, And he's fucking tired of the plotting and scheming, you know? And for the rest of the chapter, basically, Chani is basically coaxing him, trying to get him to be more responsive. 
and he is 100% lost in his thoughts. Now, we're going to talk about his visions as a takeaway today, kind of the things that he's thinking about. But uh, there's too much to say about it now without getting more bogged down than we already have. Uh, (laughs) But for now, the chapter ends with them. They've kind of extinguished their glow globes. They've closed the curtains. They're in the dark in each other's arms. And it's really a sweet, touching moment. You know, she says, have I angered you? And he goes, no. (laughs) Like you couldn't. You're the best. Ah. Right. (laughs) Ah. Beautiful stuff. Oh, oh my God. There we are. What a way to start a book. Yeah. And what a precedent to set for this damn book club. That was the longest goddamn summary ever. <laughs> 50 pages. How did it take this long? <laughs> um, oh. It's just so dense. There's yeah. so much to talk about. Everything from Bronzo flexing on the priests to the conspirators coming together and all that subtext in that chapter. And then we join our boy Paul and he has these visions and we got to catch up on the last 12 years there's just a lot this book starts off with a lot and it jumps right in pedal to the metal and uh, you got to keep up we didn't even talk about moheim calling jessica a bitch (laughs) 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 we ah there's so much so much but we need a breather that was a big summary that was a lot to cover we're gonna take a bit of a break and after the break we will be back with our key takeaways. We're going to dive a bit deeper into Paul's moodiness, the terrible headspace that he's in right now, and we will touch on the origins of this jihad that we keep hearing about. Right. So all of that will be in our takeaway section in just a minute. Don't go anywhere. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. Let's get into now the first of our two takeaways, Paul's terrible headspace. So as it turns out, and I don't know if you knew this, Leo, but Uh ruling an empire for 12 years as a godlike messiah and unleashing a bloody jihad across the entire galaxy is exhausting. Okay, I've only done it twice, but it it is, (laughs) I, I found it to be pretty tired. Yeah. Yeah. And look, Paul is downtrodden he is dejected he is depressed and all the other bad d words out there (laughs) yeah he's not in a good mood he's in a terrible headspace after 12 years of ruling in this position as the most powerful person in the galaxy not just because of his prescience but also because he's the emperor right now it's worth noting that it's clear that the responsibilities of being emperor and the responsibilities of all of this power have taken a crushing toll on him. Like I said, he's bitter, he's feeling defeated, another bad D word there. (laughs) And this certainly isn't the glow up that you'd expect if you read the first book and just stopped reading there. Right. In most people's minds, Paul, quote unquote, wins at the end of the first book and all's well that ends well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But clearly it isn't. Now, of course, 
his role in addition to the emperor, his role as the first Kwisatz Hederach may also have something to do with how he's feeling at the moment. Quote, I succumbed to the lure of the Oracle. End quote. Ugh. Yikes. Yeah. Look at the language that's being used here. The way he's describing his prescient powers. These aren't blessings. I have succumbed to the lure of the Oracle. There's a lot of negative connotations in the way he's thinking about being the first Kwisatz Haderach, and that's been weighing on him. And once again, just talking about the book in general, here's another warning. We've already gotten multiple warnings in just these first 50 pages about the dangers of prescience. Right. A few warnings from Bronzo of Ix. Long may he live. <laughs> Love him. Yep. And now a warning here from Paul himself. I succumbed to the lure of the Oracle. Prescience, not all it's cracked up to be. Yeah. I mean, there's also two sides of this. Yeah, we're getting this note that all-seeing prescience is clearly a curse and infinitely dangerous, not just for Paul, but for, well, probably everyone, everyone forever. Yeah. There's that side of it. But the other side of this is from Bronzo's takeaways and also hear Paul's thoughts, the lure of the oracle. Look at how clearly Paul is coming to understand prescience in his life. But remember, Paul was having prescient dreams before he turned 15. Right. Paul was having prescient dreams as a child with no grasp on the dangers, the traps, the threat of prescience, right? Imagine being a child and going, I can see the fucking future. This is dope. No way this could be a bad thing. And for Paul then to be thinking in this chapter, did I set a trap for myself? Did I create the future? It's so far reaching into Paul's past. No one understood prescience before Paul was born, really. Barely anybody, as we're told today uh, from Gaius, Helen, and Edric, barely anybody understands prescience as it is now in Dune. Yeah. And yet Paul is reflecting bitterly, God, I've been doing this shit my whole life. <laughs> right. What are the ramifications of that? And clearly they're weighing on him. And he is sad. He is a sad man. Yeah, he's the first guinea pig of prescience. Yeah. So in addition to being tired because he's the emperor ruling an entire galaxy and being the first Kwisatz Hederach with these infinitely powerful visions, one more thing has gotten Paul down in the dumps. A couple more D words there. <laughs> he's feeling gloomy because of the jihad. Yeah. Which we obviously learned in these pages ended up happening despite Paul's best efforts all throughout the first book. Right. There's some really heartbreaking stuff here. There's a powerful quote that I want to read. He thought then of the jihad, of the gene mingling across parsecs and the vision which told him how he might end it. Should he pay the price? All the hatefulness would evaporate, dying as fires die, ember by ember. But, oh, the terrifying price. I never wanted to be a god, he thought. I wanted only to disappear like a jewel of trace dew caught by the morning. End quote. Ugh. Wow. Also, very, very Dune thinking there. Very Fremen thinking there. 
can guarantee you dew doesn't disappear on Caladan. That planet is wet as fuck. <laughs> that is a very Arrakis thought. <laughs> yeah. And that's a good point. He, he's fully a Fremen by this point in his life. Ah, such a, that, that quote hit me so hard yeah. when I read it. I never wanted to be a god. I just want to disappear. That he he's not in a good place. No. And this jihad is weighing heavy on his soul. And there are even hints that he could maybe do something to end it, but the price is too terrifying. Whatever that price is, we don't know what it is. But it's too much to ask of him. He's not able to cross that threshold and make that decision. So imagine that. Imagine that there's a jihad waged in, in your name that you technically know how to stop, but you just can't. That's worse than believing you can't stop it, right? Right. You, right. you could square with the fact that, oh, well, there was nothing I could do. This jihad was going to happen no matter what. No. In his visions, there's a way he could stop it. He knows how. And he's choosing not to or can't bring himself to. Right. That's even worse. It's horrible stuff. And it's, we start to really understand why Paul is so devastated in, in this first chapter where we meet him. He's cr clearly haunted by this terrible purpose that we've known from the very early pages of the first book. And he continues to just see more and more apocalyptic and awful visions of humanity's future. Like things, like we said earlier, things are not getting better no matter the choices he makes. Yes, there is that idea of like, it is bad, it is getting worse, and it could get much worse, it could have been much worse. Again, this is why Paul is still around, because he's like, I have to be here to mitigate the damage. And yet, you're right, it's just things are kind of slipping away unless he takes some action. Right. And actually, speaking of mitigating and taking some actions, there are some hints throughout these pages that there is some sort of great sacrifice or great sacrifices, plural, that Paul could make to quote unquote fix these awful futures that he continues to see in his visions. It's not super clear in the writing so far. It's very vague at the moment. Again, we're just getting pieces and parts of these visions. But there are hints that allowing Chani to die may be one sacrifice required of Paul. Right. And Clearly, these two love each other. We talked about how loving and caring and wonderful their relationship is and clearly has been these last 12 years. He doesn't want to make that decision and you can't blame him. She's his desert spring, as he calls her. Yeah. And he actually mulls this over. There's a great quote. He mulls over weighing her life against the life of every being in the galaxy. Quote. He saw how he'd been hemmed in by the boundaries of love and the jihad. And what was one life, no matter how beloved, against all the lives the jihad was certain to take? Could single misery be weighed against the agony of multitudes and, quote, my God, imagine yourself in <sighs> his shoes having to make that decision. And to be clear, that is one part of this. Like, that's one piece of what he sees as the price but earlier we you know we read a quote where it describes these very precise uncompromising steps he would have to take that he just can't can't bring himself to and it's clear that that's part of it 
right? That's clear that that's one of them. So there are these suggestions that Paul would have to do more than just let Shani die. Yeah. And whatever that is, is beyond his comprehension. Already, already we're starting with the only thing we know he has to do is something he can't bring himself to do. Everything else, also apparently really fucking hard to come to terms with. So our guy's feeling really stuck between this kind of rock and a hard place, right? These last 12 years. Yeah. He has these unique powers that no one else in the universe has ever had. And the Fremen who saved him and also acted as that fuel that catalyzed his empire, those same Fremen and those same powers are now leading Paul and humanity down a path of destruction. Right. And to wrap up this first takeaway about Paul's despondency, we get yet another explicit warning about prescient powers. We get this quote. Could it be, he wondered, that the oracle didn't tell the future? Could it be that the oracle made the future? Had he exposed his life to some web of underlying threads trapped himself there in that long-ago awakening, victim of a spider future which even now advanced upon him with terrifying jaws. A Bene Gesserit axiom slipped into his mind. To use raw power is to make yourself infinitely vulnerable to greater powers. End quote. Uh, so Fuck, much there. I love me a Bene Gesserit axiom. <laughs> They're all pretty good. <laughs> they are all pretty good. Also that trapped himself there in that long ago awakening, right? Yeah. The idea of the trap being set at the moment of his awakening, which could be the waking from the coma as the Kwisatz Haderach, could also be him beginning to have prescient dreams as a child. And that that is the moment that this sort of trap is being set up is doubly tragic because in those times, he had such immediate needs for his powers. And to think now that they've exacted this impossible-to-comprehend price is bafflingly sad. <laughs> yeah. Horrifying stuff. So sad. And also this point about the Oracle not telling the future, but making the future? Yeah. That's a wild proposition. The idea that by his very choices... And because he knows what the outcome of some of those choices will be, he is single-handedly shaping and creating the future in a way that no one else can because all the rest of us, normal people living out here, just roll the die every day, right? We get out of bed, we do things, and we don't know what will happen moment to moment. Paul knows exactly where that die will land. He knows he's going to get snake eyes. And so he can plan for that. So maybe that vision of Snake Eyes isn't just telling him this will happen, but helping him create that future. It's, it's mind-bending stuff to think about. Or even to make it more, perhaps, cruel, he sees that Abu rolled Snake Eyes. And thus, you have no randomness. You have no chance. You have no choice. Yeah. The future is not just Paul's future. It's everyone's future. There are a lot of people who might have thought I had a choice in whether or not to let the jihad happen. And they're wrong. Right. <laughs> they didn't. Paul saw it, and thus it happened. And that's on Paul. 
or at least that's maybe how Paul is feeling at this moment. Again, whether or not that's even the case, because he glimpsed this terrible purpose long before he had any real grasp on this possible cost, it's it's a little hard to exactly parse where his responsibility lies. But to be very clear, making the future ain't such a big deal if it's just yours, but fun fact, it's everybody, especially because he now rules the fucking galaxy. <laughs> exactly. Not he, He's not some, like, fisherman living a life of solitude <laughs> right where he comes across like two other people per year i caught another fish <laughs> oh way to go bro didn't cause a jihad <laughs> right no he is the most powerful person politically in the galaxy every decision he makes affects billions trillions of people across the entire milky way yeah it's- i caught a tire <laughs> right. Did I create every that time, tire? <laughs> every time Paul catches a fish, the ripple effect of that fucking wipes out a million people somewhere. Like <laughs> it's a costly halibut or some other type of fish. <laughs> right. Minnow? Yeah, it's wild. I think the word that comes to mind for me is agency. Yeah. His prescient powers take away my agency to roll snake eyes, right? Because he knows it's going to happen. So do I even have the choice to roll that? I don't. But also, he himself is almost a victim to these prescient powers. Like you said, when he was a kid having those dreams, was he already shaping the future via those dreams? Was he a victim to that prescience? Was his agency taken away at that point? And building that spider web, like he says here, this spider web of a future that he now feels trapped in, was that happening so long ago when he was only like five years old and didn't know what those weird dreams he was having were crazy to think about. I almost stopped myself from saying, also think about young child, Paul dreaming of Chani being his love. And does that remove her agency as a romantic partner and how oh dark, my God. dark of a consideration <laughs> that is. And at first I was like, Oh man, maybe that's too dark. I forgot. We're talking about 12 years of a jihad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is it fucked up? Yes. All of it is. And that's kind of of the point. That's kind of all of it. And again, does it make sense to look back and go, well, if only things had been different? Not necessarily, but that's what Paul's doing. And Paul is really, at the end of all of this, it really feels like this most powerful person in the history of all of humanity is hyper vulnerable. Yeah. He is in in a place where really he's looking for any alternative to what he sees as as kind of a terrible future or complacency and stagnation yeah yeah he he's feeling mighty vulnerable and uh i have a proposition for you (laughs) yeah leo Uh uh-huh what's up now would be a great time to maybe plot a conspiracy against him you win or you you win Uh. I love doing that on Thursdays. <laughs> Let's fucking go. <laughs> Take down the emperor. Let's do it. I've been, dude, I've been itching too since like Tuesday or Monday. Right, it's, right. It's my mood this week. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, things are tense here in these first couple chapters. It is clear that Paul is vulnerable. A conspiracy of very powerful people is rising up against him. People inside his own palace. Things are coming to a head. Again, Frank is a masterful writer. In these first just 50 pages, I'm sweating. (laughs) 
Now, let's move on to the second and our final takeaway today. Yes. The origins of the jihad and Paul's not-so-smooth rise to power. Could have been smoother, was in fact extra crunchy Jif peanut butter. (laughs) Full peanuts. Full peanuts immersed in the cream. Right. I don't think I've ever asked you, crunchy or creamy. What do you think I'm going to say? I think you're going to say crunchy. Yo, all into that crunchy, boy. Yes, crunchy all the way. You too? All the way, same. Uh, I love that crunchy. 100%. Yo, if y'all out there in listener land prefer creamy, email us. Gamjabari podcast, gmail. Email us why. Explain why you're a couple of heathens. (laughs) Explain your hearsay. (laughs) Explain your hearsay and get ready to be interviewed by the priest. The priesthood of (laughs) peanut butter. Death sentence. Creamy death sentence. (laughs) Now, ruling any type of empire is a tough job. But our guy Paul over here already has it pretty hard. Yeah. Now, this book started with basically three chapters just describing how bad of a time Paul's been having. Basically, we get the impression and we're told Paul's followers have put him on this God pedestal and it spawned this huge movement of people who are like, fuck Paul. God, that guy's an asshole. He's terrible. And Bronso tells us this seeds the beginning of the end of Paul Atreides, whatever that means. Right. A lot lot of grim, dark foreshadowing and hints all throughout these opening chapters. Yeah. But let's talk about those early years of his rule, because while we have a lot of foreshadowing to what may come and some hints of what did happen, we don't really get a clear picture of what happened on like uh, day two. Of Paul being emperor, you know, right. like what what was his hundred day plan? What did he present <laughs> when he took over? He just wakes up every day to do list, kill more people. He's like, <laughs> God, I'm tired. <laughs> right, right. So the jihad, of course, is a clear and very obvious example of how bad things have gotten over these past 12 years. But the implications of that jihad are even bleaker. So let's rewind the clock 12 years ago. End of the first Dune book, Paul has risen to power. Recall, if you will, how exactly Paul rose to power. As we know, at the end of the first book, Paul kicked the previous emperor's ass. Yep. With a group of desert natives that no one in the entire galaxy thought was a threat. And then he simply seized the throne. Paul effectively pulled off a successful coup with... What can only be described as a small group of radicals yeah, (laughs) who then spread their radical religious views about their messiah across the galaxy in the bloodiest way possible, all under Paul's watch and direction. That's, in my estimation, not exactly a great way (laughs) to gain the popular support of the people that you now lead. And to be clear, (laughs) we recognize that phrasing is in the sort of like opposing Paul camp vocabulary because yes we know Paul is very hesitant about all of this but from the outside you just see this sure-footed kid who basically mugged the emperor and then killed a bunch of people right with his ragtag group of people you thought were nobodies who are objectively religious fanatics I mean they have so many (laughs) wonderful qualities 
Will you see those qualities when you're on the battlefield against their Chris knives? No, you will not. <laughs> They're going to kill you and literally drink your water. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it it's clear that Paul didn't exactly win the popular support. This was not a democratic election, uh, <laughs> despite how messy even those can be. I mean, he literally overthrew the previous ruling house and took over. He took power. And you can imagine how that wouldn't exactly sit well with other powerful people in the empire, right? Yeah. This leadership change, this management change in the restaurant happened without asking anyone else. And while the book doesn't give us a whole lot of what happened in those early few years of his rule, luckily we have the ever amazing Dune Encyclopedia, which fills in some of the gaps for us. So looking in the encyclopedia, we learned that in those early years, the great houses were not happy with this new ownership. They were giving one-star Yelp reviews all around. <laughs> I think the waiter stabbed my kid and then drank his water. <laughs> this restaurant's terrible. Two stars. <laughs> Room for improvement. I mean, the spice morsels were delicious. Like, I'm going back right, to those. Undeniably. But not bringing I'm a little my bit kids. addicted to them, if you know what I mean, but... <laughs> My eyes are so blue. Chris Hemsworth is jealous. <laughs> we have this quote in the encyclopedia about the great houses not being happy. Several forces combined to force the jihad upon him. The most obvious was the revolt of the Lanstrad houses prompted by the overthrow of House Carino. End quote. Yeah. So right there, we see that the jihad didn't just unleash one day. There were forces that basically forced Paul's hand. He had to do this in response to these houses rising up against him. And a lot of the houses actually took this ownership change as a moment to try and gain their independence. They were opportunistic about it. And they imagined, hey, this guy like kicked the emperor off the throne. We don't have to worry about his very scary Sardaukar anymore. This is maybe our moment to shine. Let's get out of here. Yeah. And Although we're talking right now about the Dune Encyclopedia, remember in the first book, the Baron had his own plan for taking over the throne. House Carino has only been in charge because they have the Sardaukar, a military force that would take the combined forces of everybody to equal out. And in general, that all of the houses are afraid of what happened to House Atreides, that they're singled out and killed because clearly there is a very tense relationship between House Carino and everyone else. And I just wanted to highlight that we get all of the seeds of that tension in this kind of tightly bound, very, very tense empire that Paul breaks apart. Of course, the temptation, the natural and canonical temptation is going to be then to spread out, to say, yes, we are no longer controlled. This makes perfect sense and is very well established by Frank's writings. So again, we'll continue to talk about this Dune Encyclopedia entry, but I just wanted to think about these little seeds that we got in that first book. This is something that I, I get the impression that the major houses have all been sort of fantasizing about, you know, oh, it's going to be great when Shaddam's gone. Oh yeah. Yep. And now he is, and they're like, woo, freedom. And then Paul's like, yeah, okay, hold up one second. Uh, no. 
<laughs> Great houses. Meet the back of my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a uh, tooth of Shai Halud that is willing to uh, meet you. And they're like, I don't know what two of those words were. Uh, and I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we have another great passage from the encyclopedia that talks about this great house rebellion. Quote, the great houses that rebelled made a disastrous miscalculation. What seemed to the great houses to be a matter of politics was to the Fremen in the province of religion. The leaders of the great houses saw themselves as taking advantage of a moment of political flux. The Fremen saw unbelievers defying their Mahdi. To the Fremen, rebellion against Paul Muad'Dib was an attack on the Messiah. End quote. Good I'm lord. Scared. I mean, think about all of the quotes in Dune, Liet Kynes and Pardo Kynes, you know, making religion and law the same. Jessica reflecting on that same principle. The idea of the Fremen who don't recognize the distinction between politics and culture and religion, and Paul existing as a dichotomy of both Paul Atreides, political figure, and Paul Muad'Dib, religious Lisan al-Gabe. Like, fuck, this is all exactly at that crux, that fulcrum of religion and politics being separate or together, depending on your culture. Ugh. Right. Paul is like, Hey, separation of church and state, meet the back of my hand. <laughs> it's, it's one of his go-to sayings, yeah. <laughs> Fade Rautha, desire to end me, meet the back of my hand. <laughs> then a knife to the brain. That, that comes up. Yeah, it's a, it's a real catchphrase of his. <laughs> now, the, re- <laughs> the rebellions for the great houses do not go well is right. a way of really understating it. But the the Fremen in all their religious fervor need to crush these great houses, get them in line, right? Right. And at first, this is a political move. And then it evolves because, again, the Fremen's religious belief, ultimate belief in their Messiah, in their Lisan al-Gave, Paul Muad'Dib, it evolves into a jihad. The encyclopedia explains how that evolution from political war to religious jihad happened. Quote, Rebellion continued, and the Fremen victories spread across the galaxy. As the natives of Arrakis moved from planet to planet and system to system, they encountered many faiths not their own, some involving tenets or rituals as loathsome to them as the discoveries on Richie's had been to the Camoans. As time worlds and lives of millions and then billions passed, the religious motivations of the Fremen came to play an ever greater part in their battles. Slowly, the assurance of a secure throne for their Mahdi came to be joined by the desire for a purified empire. End quote. Uh, Oh my god. That's so (laughs) ominous. And just as a a quick reminder, because I know a lot of these planets can get confusing, this is saying that the Fadakin and the Fremen, you know, missionaries spreading across the galaxy were as disgusted by other religions and other cultures as the Butlerian jihadists and the Butlerian, uh, the Butlerian sympathizers 
were to find computers and technology in one of the other most devastating jihads in human history at this point in 40-ish thousand years of Dune history, again, defined the universe that we are in. So too, probably, will this jihad define the universe, but maybe on a new scale. I don't know. It's a little hard to say. Right, right. No kidding. Now, to wrap up this takeaway number two, this tracking of the jihad, how it started off by political necessity, how Paul's rise to power wasn't the smoothest, and ultimately the Fremen's religious beliefs is what turned it into a jihad and much bloodier than it started off. The encyclopedia does a really good job of summing up these first 12 years of Paul's rule for us. So I'm going to read this quote in its entirety. Sure. By the time the last of the Fremen forces had returned to Arrakis, the war's over and the new Imperium begun, there was not a force left in the universe which could stand against the Emperor's might. The tensions and balances which characterized the relations between House Carino and the forces of the Landstrad were gone, never to return. In their place had arisen the sole force of the Emperor Paul Muad'Dib. And <laughs> there it is. Oof. He has crushed the old balances of the universe, the Landstrad, the Sardaukar, the Space and Guild, this like tripod that balanced all the political factions and the infighting and intrigue in the previous empire. None of that exists anymore. Wiped out. It is now just one person, Paul Muad'Dib. It was like a flimsy birch stool. Ugh, get out of here. <laughs> now it's an oak, solid, monolithic. Yeah, wild stuff. So those are our two takeaways from today's readings. The first, obviously, is Paul's mental and emotional state after 12 years of dealing with the responsibilities of his role as Kwisatz Haderach, his role as emperor, and his role in the bloodshed of the jihad. And then takeaway number two, how that jihad actually came to be and how those first 12 years were not the smoothest rule under Paul Atreides until he solidified his power and crushed all opposition. Pretty dark stuff, a dark way to start this sequel of a book. Yeah, I love Welcome it. Welcome to Dune Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard pivot, yeah. It's a hard pivot. <laughs> well, let's talk now about our spice morsels but before we do, we're going to take a quick break. So stick around. Right after this, we're going to talk about the Kizarate. <laughs> the Kizarate? The Quiz. Qu- qu- we're going to talk about some spice morsels. Kizarate is a sports drink I've tried. Kizarate? It has electrolytes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's delicious. Uh, stick around. Quench your religious thirst. <laughs> <laughs> with, with Kizarate, sponsor. <laughs> Hang out. We'll be right back. all right welcome back we hope these last 12 years have not been horrifying for you (laughs) right let's jump right into our spice morsels for today right so the first spice morsel is the kizarate uh spelled q-i-z-a-r-a-t-e we heard it in the audiobook and have both forgotten how it's said in the audiobook. So we're going to say Kizarate today. And if that's wrong, hey, we're sorry. 
We're sorry, okay? This term, Kizarate, is thrown around a lot in Messiah, and it is worth being very clear who and what exactly it entails and is. We first get the word in Bronzo's analysis of history, Stan Bronzo. Quote, Muad'Dib's Kizarate missionaries carried their religious war across space in a jihad whose major impetus endured only 12 standard years, but in that time, religious colonialism brought all but a fraction of the human universe under one rule. End quote. So, in essence, the Kizarate are the religious civil servants of Paul's following. Now, some of these, some of these individuals of the Kizarate are kind of quote-unquote retired fidekin, but some of them are off-worlders. To wrap up this morsel, in summary, the Kizarate is the action-oriented arm of the religion that Bronzo is criticizing and basically contains a mixture of Fremen and off-worlders united by a uh, <laughs> problematic adoration of Paul Muad'Dib. Alrighty, spice morsel number two is the Dune Tarot. We actually did an entire episode dedicated to the Dune Tarot because it's yeah, so did. fascinating <laughs> and there's so much about it in the encyclopedia, like pages and pages and pages of info. <laughs> so if you're really interested in learning more about the Dune Tarot, definitely go check out that episode. But just one word of warning, that episode does have spoilers for the first and second book. So make sure you finish Messiah before you learn more about the Dune Tarot. But in brief... We'll share a little nugget about it here. So we hear about it in Bronzo's analysis of history. Shouts to our boy Bronzo. Quote, Love you. <laughs> Other histories point out the spies in Muad'Dib's household. They make much of the Dune Tarot, which clouded Muad'Dib's powers of prophecy. End quote. Hello. Yeah. That's a small sentence, but with a lot of implications. <laughs> yeah. Now, among the population of Arrakis and really the empire at large, Inspired by their new emperor and his cool, weird hipster sister <laughs> yeah. doing all these prescient things, a lot of folks started using these Dune tarot texts, buying and selling, in an attempt to peer into the future themselves. In Dune canon, the Dune tarot actually does provide small amounts of prescience, very yeah, small glimpses like literal into the future. Yeah, yeah like literal glimpses of Paul's massive power. Now, as Bronzo stated, all of these people in the galaxy poking around in prescient visions in much the same way that Edric and his prescient abilities cause a blind spot in Paul's visions. Millions and billions of people using these annoying little cards to take like one second glimpses into the future all collectively create a lot of noise in Paul's prescient visions as well. And it's so fascinating that this Small detail in this book that Bronzo mentions so early on here in chapter two of the book play a pivotal role in our main character's powers. They cloud his prescient visions because so many other people are poking around in it. Indeed. And our final spice morsel to wrap up this <laughs> buffet of, a, of, a, of an episode <laughs> uh, is, is really just because we should talk about it. The Mirabasa language. I immediately went down this whole rabbit hole of trying to figure out exactly <laughs> what that is. And I'm happy to tell you, I failed. <laughs> it is generally the consensus about this language is that it is a language used 
probably in conjunction with hand signs, like the Atreides battle language that we see throughout the first book, but one that in this case maybe just allows for more subtle communication and more uh, maybe like faster communication of one's deeper thoughts and feelings. But that's kind of everything I could find regarding primary sources. And to be clear, the Mirabasa language does not come up again in other Dune books. <laughs> I did multiple word searches to be sure of that. Um, so this might be one of those things that Frank threw into the universe that is an unanswered question and an unspecified sort of unresolved mystery. Sometimes you just got to shrug and go, all right, this is fun. <laughs> this is a fun sci-fi fantasy book. And there are going to be words that don't necessarily need a lot of meaning. But I did feel it would be against our duty as Gom Jabbar hosts not to talk for a moment about Mirabasa. Right. It's fun world building. Not much more than that. Right. Oh, boy. First episode, and we've already set the precedent that these are all going to be doozies. Wow. This might be the longest episode we've recorded. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. And we have so much more of this book to go. I can't wait. <sighs> what a first 50 pages. What a first episode of Dune Messiah. Again, it's such a dense book. It's my favorite in the series, and I can't wait to pick apart all the tiny Mirabasa-type details with you <laughs> across the course of this series. So Indeed. for the next episode's reading, make sure that you've read through page 99, or if your book is different from our paperback copies, through the chapter that ends in the sentence, quote, he's a danger to both of us, she thought, end quote. Mm. Yeah, he is. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And you know what? Be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. Yeah, no, literally go for it. Like, it would be absurd for me to be angry at you for getting laid. Uh, yeah, but J Johnny and I are fucking all the time. I mean, like, <laughs> I, mean I know you can hear. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Makes her sleep in an adjoining room. Those fucking <laughs> just curtains. <laughs>